The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Tonight, I'm going to be teaching from Mark 10. Uh, I'll pray for us, and then we'll get into our message for tonight. God, you're so amazing. You're so good. Thank you for the privilege and honor it is to stand as one of your kids. There's no greater honor than being one of yours, being claimed by you. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be called a son or a daughter of the Lord Most High. We pray for Danny and the ministry that he does on an ongoing basis. Pray that you would bless him, that your hand of favor would rest on him. You'd bring him back to us safely. And also that the ministry that he does out in Las Vegas um, for Sister Catherine's family would be powerful. It'd be comforting. He would bring much relief, empowered by your Holy Spirit. And that for us tonight, that you would speak. We don't want to do any of this without you. You are the reason why we are here. You're the reason why we exist. Our very purpose and meaning is derived from your existence. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would fill this place. You'd walk into the room right now. You continue to fill us. You continue to pour out your truth and your mercy and your love on us. And as we dig into your word, that you would illumine the dark parts of our hearts and our minds this evening. And if you can, Helps to have a little fun while we're doing it. We love you. And we pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so I wanted to start off our Bible study in a couple unconventional ways. One is we just, the high school ministry, just got back from an amazing trip to San Francisco. And so I just wanted to briefly tell you guys a little bit about that. We went to, look at them. How cuties. Look at these little guys. So this is part of our team uh, on the Golden Gate Bridge. What a beautiful picture, too. Come on, Apple iPhones are killing it. So this is you know, part of our team here up on the bridge. This is just moments after they're all hanging over the railing, telling cars to honk their horns as they drove by goofballs. And then this next picture is um, our group <laughs> laying on the ground at the Palace of Fine Arts there in San Francisco after a long day of ministry. They wanted to go straight to bed. No, I'm just kidding. They wanted to go out and have adventures in the moonlit night of San Francisco Hills. And so we went to the Palace of Fine Arts. And there's one big dome with all these, you know, these cascading pillars. And it's a very divine, angelic kind of, kind of scene, decor. decor. And so we laid underneath the middle of that dome and just kind of took it all in, laid there and we found ourselves kind of just head to head, all in this funny little circle. And then this last picture really is what we came there to do. This is um, what they refer to as pop-up church. Now, there's a few different things that we do in SF in partnership with YWAM San Francisco, but the highlight of our ministry for me was this pop-up church. Now, if you can imagine, in maybe one of the most, if not the most progressive states in the US, in maybe the, one of the most, if not the most, progressive city in the most progressive state, San Francisco, for four hours, three, four hours, they shut down in partnership with the city. They shut down half the street. Why? So that we can worship and we can preach the gospel. How cool is that? So we, sh- we shut the street down. You see people are sitting in chairs in the middle of the street. So cool. This is on Ellis Street. And let me explain to you kind of what's happening here. In the very foreground, you have people praying 
together. So cool, just out in the open air, praise the Lord. Um, on the far side, straight through them, you see a few of our students, beautifully talented students, um, leading worship uh, right in front of a cross, big wooden cross that we plant right on the sidewalk. You know, it's not like hidden back in, the, in a closet somewhere, anything like that. It's like right in the middle of the sidewalk, and then they stand right in front of it speakers, a full sound system, like a PA, and it's just blasting the whole area with worship music. So cool. And then over on the right, you see a few of our students at a resource table where people can get pamphlets, uh, a New Testament, uh, or prayer. So we have a few of our students doing that. And then just out of view to the left side of where the students are leading worship, there are yet more students of ours uh, giving out cocoa, hot cocoa, and cookies um, for anyone that wants to come and partake. You know, kind of like we do donuts here. It's a little extra incentive to come and hang out with us. Um, and the, the part that struck me, one of the parts that struck me in looking at this, and one of the parts that I want to encourage you with tonight um, is that... There was no part of what happened that day, save just the message, which a local pastor wanted to preach himself. Uh, there was no part of the program that happened that morning that did not involve direct student involvement. In fact, there was far fewer adults that were directly involved with the program than there were students. As you can see here, there is one adult helping man the table. There are no adults helping lead worship. There are no adults helping hand out hot cocoa or cookies. Um, there are students absolutely everywhere. And as I was talking to them about this later on that night, the word struck me, and I believe it was from the Lord. The word was ready. Uh, and this is certainly spoken of in scripture, that the, the harvest is ready, but the laborers are few. And elsewhere in scripture, not to be looked down upon for your youth, um, <laughs> there was a funny moment just before we came out for worship where we're praying together and, uh, and uh, we're talking about the different connections that we have on the band. And Jebby, um, the small one next to Jimmy while I was singing, um, she was talking about, you know, she's in high school and, you know, obviously very young as a result. And then our bass player said that he was getting ready for his 50th anniversary, his 50th reunion, excuse me, his 50th reunion. And she looked across the room and said, what's that? Like, what does that mean? He's like, oh, like, like a high school reunion. And she said, they have those? <laughs> Which is such a funny thing. And it's really cool in light of what we experienced in San Francisco, that someone who's literally in high school leading worship on the same band of someone that is getting ready for their 50th high school reunion. Certainly there is no boundary. There is no bar. There is no, there's no limit to the ministry that you can accomplish as you're empowered by the Holy Spirit. You're not too young. You're not too old. You're not too far off. You're not too near. That there is a big wide open door for ministry to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it is absolutely open to everyone. Um, I just wanted to open by talking about this. I love telling stories. I love encouraging our body and I love doing it through the ministry of many of our high school students. So can we just give a clap offering to the Lord for that? So good. Amazing. Okay, so that was the first of two unconventional ways that I want to start the service. But now we're actually going to get into the scripture and I'm going to put you guys to work, okay? You guys at home too. You're not getting out of this without getting a little work done yourselves. Okay, so Mark 10, verse 46. Ready? Here we go. 
And they, meaning Jesus and the disciples and the crowd that followed them, and they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And we're going to Park it there because those astute readers of the Bible will notice something rather peculiar. Because in two, in the other two synoptic gospels, which is basically just the other two gospels um, that seem to parallel Mark, that is Matthew and Luke, also say this story. They also retell this story. But something strange is about to happen because in Luke 18:35. Here's what it says, verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Do you remember what Mark said? As he was leaving Jericho with his disciples. Uh-oh, we got a little problem. Again, even further complicating the issue, in Matthew 20, verse 29, this same story is retold, and again, we get a little bit of variation. Verse 29 and as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. Okay, now this can bring up a whole host of reactions. The first of which is, if you're in here and you have any animosity, or if you're watching online, you're hearing my voice somewhere out in the great world somewhere, it might be the reaction of like, see, this is what I'm talking about. You can't really trust the Bible. There's not a whole lot, you know, there's these contradictions that, that undermine the truth, the veracity of Scripture. And so as a result, like, what can we actually take seriously? I don't agree, but that reaction certainly is out there, and I wouldn't fault you for having it. It can also bring up the reaction of thinking that the Bible is infallible in, 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 in a way it's incapable of failing to do that which it set out to do, which is to reveal God. So it's infallible in that regard, but not inerrant, that it does have errors. But generally, the message is the same. So you could have that view. The scripture is infallible, but it's inerrant. Also, I don't agree. I think there's a third option, and I'm really excited to tell you guys about that. It is, I would argue, inerrant, it is without error that these contradictions, these distinctions between the synoptic gospels and others have a valid, have a, have a good explanation for them. And also certainly that the scripture is infallible in that which it sets out to do. It does accurately reveal Jesus. It does show us the way to the Father that is through Jesus. But if these distinctions, if these contradictions exist, how do we sort through them? How can I possibly hold the, the perspective that the Bible is both inerrant and infallible? Well, I'm going to need some help for this one. The first way is I want you, if you can, uh, without talking to the person next to you, to make an observation about the room that we're in right now. Or if you're at home, the, observa uh, the room that you're in. It could be literally anything. It could be uh, I don't want to plant any ideas in your brains, but it could be uh, an observation about the room in any capacity, any, any, absolutely anything about the room. Now, if you can, I want you to write whatever that is down. It could be just one word, it could be a couple words, something like that. Just don't show the person next to you. This is not a magic trick. It's not going to be like, whoa, how did he know? It's not anything like that. <laughs> okay. Um, but I do want you to like, if you can, Write down just one word, maybe, that observation or a couple words, um, and then we're going to do something with that, 
okay? So if you want to write it down, great, do that. If you don't, like just log that away in your memory, take a little mental snapshot. And, uh, and now, if you're sitting next to someone, I want you to share what it is that you observed. I want you to show them the word that you wrote down or the couple of words that you wrote down. And here's something that's so interesting. Did anyone write down the same thing as the person next to them? See, I was hoping that was going to happen because I'm like, you found your soulmate, you know? If they were coming here and they were dating or something like that, you found your soulmate. Here's your sign. You know, if you're looking for your sign to get married, this is God telling you. But unfortunately, sorry to say, this isn't that sign. What's interesting, though, to note about that is while your observations were different, neither was wrong, right? Neither was wrong. Some of you maybe have said that the room is big, it's massive. And somebody else said that the room has people in it. Is it possible that it's both? Absolutely. Someone said maybe there's a wall with TVs on it. And somebody else may have said there's a wall with no TVs on it. Is it possible that both are true? Absolutely. We can see for ourselves that both are true right here and right now. So when we look back at the Synoptic Gospels, here's the first thing that we find that is super, super helpful in now knowing that these, these variations, these supposed contradictions, aren't necessarily contradictions at all. One says uh, that there was one blind man begging. The other says that there was two blind men begging. Is it possible that there were maybe even more than two blind men begging, and yet, <laughs> I just saw someone shaking their head no, like they know that's possible. Um, obviously they were kidding. Um, it's possible, certainly, uh, that there was more than one blind man begging, and that one person observed two, one person observed one, maybe there is even another uh, account that observed you know, three or four blind men begging. Here's the second part that may be a little bit more difficult to get to because some of the authors said that they were leaving Jericho and some said that they're arriving in Jericho. Now, how do we sort that one out? There's like, how can that possibly be, right? There's, you know, only one direction into Jericho or out of Jericho and that's super strange. Well, many of you have heard of Jericho. If you've been going to church for some while, maybe you've heard the iconic story about Jericho's walls falling. Because of radical obedience, they didn't fight, there was no violence, there was nothing. The walls just fell down in response to radical obedience of enduring worship. So powerful. Not my, not my sermon to preach tonight, but it's so powerful. Maybe some of you guys have heard that story. Well, in the centuries that followed, Jericho remained, but in a somewhat dilapidated state. The city was kind of in ruins, as you can imagine, but the civilization kind of survived on. That is, until King Herod came along. And King Herod was a prolific, uh, a prolific builder. He loved building projects, and he wanted a place for his winter palace to land on, and he chose the site of Jericho. But because of Jericho's dilapidated state, he built off of Jericho to the southern end. So there was this old Jericho that was unattractive, that was run down. And then there was this new Jericho that extended to the south. And if you walked through Jericho, both Jerichos, there was this sense that you walked through kind of an older town. And then there was a separation between that older town and this new attractive city to live into that was filled with royalty, that was filled with, with Roman guards. It was attractive. It was more safe. And it was new. And so 
there you can see that though there was kind of, in a sense, one Jericho, there was also, in a very real sense, two Jerichos. And one, there was the old, they walked out of the one and into the new, into the new. So it's totally possible, historically possible. This is not me, you know, trying to do some weird Bible, you know, nuanced stuff. It's totally possible because there were two connected Jericho sites that would have felt like you're walking out of Jericho while at the same time walking into Jericho. And this is the beauty. I know my notes, I give my notes to them super late. I know my notes are so blank, but here's something that you would write down if you're writing notes. This is the beauty of the inerrancy of Scripture. It's that it's, this sacred book contains both the variation that you would expect from human authorship and the unity that could only come from divine inspiration, right? Because if they were, if they were trying to get their story straight, if they were just trying to write a super believable story, one that's trustworthy, one that you know, is going to fool everybody, pull the wool over their eyes, then they would have ironed out all of these kinks, all of these details, all of these variations so that their stories all matched up. But if they weren't concerned about that because they knew their story was true, then we would find what we expect. Then we would have come into what we'd expect to find, that there is a little bit of variation there. And in that variation, there is no contradiction because not only is the unity, but also the information completely there. It's divinely inspired and written by human hands. To me, this is not a testament to the supposed errancy of Scripture. To me, this is a huge flashing neon sign to the veracity of Scripture, that it is an accurate historical document that God has, uh, in his providence, protected this document throughout thousands of years. And as a result, we have a Scripture that is more trustworthy than we could have ever dreamed, we could have ever imagined that was truly written by human hands and simultaneously divinely inspired. So, so cool. That's verse one. Verse two, here we go, 1047. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. This is hilarious because this blind beggar, Bartimaeus, has abandoned all like social niceties. He's abandoned all pleasantries. He is not concerned about how much he's bothering the people around him. Is that the rain? Praise God. Living water. Come on. Amazing. Sorry, I'm so distracted. He's abandoned all of those niceties, all of those pleasantries. And even though they're like, shh, shh, he's too busy. He's too important. He's too powerful. He's too famous for you. He's like, I don't care about any of that stuff. And here, here is the most beautiful, the most beautiful take-home. The difference between those who rebuked him and Bartimaeus himself is those who rebuked him took the circumstances around Jesus and around themselves and used it to interpret their faith. It was their circumstances that informed their faith. He's too busy. He's too important. He's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to do something that is going to change everything for everyone. He's got a crowd around him. Can't you see that? 
All of those things have nothing to do with the character of Jesus. All of those things have nothing to do with who Jesus claimed to be. He never claimed to be too important. He never claimed to be too busy. He never claimed to be too above the poor, the meek, the lowly. In fact, it's for them, right? It's for them that he came. See, the difference between those who saw the circumstances around Jesus and were driven away by what they found out and Bartimaeus is that he, he took what he knew about Jesus' character, son of David, Messiah. This is a messianic claim, and he doesn't just say it once, but he says it twice. Son of David, have mercy on me. He let Jesus' character, his reputation, inform his faith, inform his circumstances. It's through his faith, through what he knew about Jesus, that he let uh, his, his circumstances and faith be informed. Because circumstances can so easily inspire fear in us and drive us away from Jesus. So if we let them become too powerful, if we focus on them, they're going to overwhelm us for sure. The Bible talks about fear. I think it says, uh, be not afraid in scripture over 300 times. It's one of the most commonly addressed things in the whole biblical narrative, which is absolutely fascinating how important God thought it was to address the fear in us. I think it points to how often we can become and how easily we can be overcome by fear. Here's what David Platt says in his book, Dangerous Calling, about fear. Fear can overwhelm your senses. Some of you have known this. Some of you have tasted this, that what you see, what you hear, what you, what you feel because of fear, it just warps it, it distorts it, it makes it feel different and scary. It can overwhelm your senses. It can distort your thinking. It can kidnap your desires. It can capture your meditation so that you spend more time. And who's, who hasn't been here? You spend more time worrying about what others think than about what God called you to be. Oh, man, fear is powerful. Fear is so powerful. And if we let circumstances be the primary voice that we're listening to, then what will happen is our faith will shrivel up. And what we know about Jesus won't be inviting. In fact, it'll be the thing that propels us from him. So we can't let it happen. Here's what we need to do. We need to let Jesus's reputation interpret our circumstances, not the other way around. We need to let Jesus's reputation interpret our circumstances, not the other way around. And this is absolutely vital because if Jesus's reputation interprets your circumstances, it changes everything. It changes everything. Like James 1 says, um, I consider it pure joy, my brothers, when he faces trials of many kinds. What in the world? When he faces trials of many kinds, he considers it what? Pure joy. What is, what is happening? How is James so different than me, you know? When I encounter trials of, very, of, of many kinds, you know, I'm like probably in the middle of traffic, you know, I'm <laughs> feeling like that. I'm like, he gives his, you know, toughest battles to his strongest soldiers, you know, <laughs> I'm trying to encourage myself. And like, what is different about James than about me? I think it's because he's really implementing this. He's really putting this into practice. 
He's letting Jesus's reputation, if Jesus is good and he knows what he's doing, then the trials will serve a greater purpose. The trials will produce in me perseverance. The trials will produce in me peace. The trials will produce in me joys that then future trials can't even access because it's too deep. It's too strong. I'm so deeply anchored in the gospel that now future trials, because of old ones, can't access it. My peace endures. My wisdom endures. I'm not controlled by my circumstances because I've let Jesus's reputation so uh, frequently interpret my circumstances that now it's second nature. Now it's like, oh, I can consider it pure joy even, and maybe especially, if you can imagine, when you experience trials of many kinds, how powerful is that? that Jesus can, can reinterpret, that Jesus can transform, that he can, he can change trials into sources of joy. That's a God that, that exists nowhere else. That's a gospel that changes absolutely everything. And when this, this man, this bland man calls out and he abandons all social niceties, when he abandons his circumstances, he doesn't let himself get held back by his circumstances, but then leans on the reputation of Jesus, this is what happened. This is how Jesus responds to abandon. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Oh man, that's so, so good. Here's what you should write down, if you want to write stuff down. Totally on you. Jesus responds to faith-filled abandon. He stopped Jesus dead in his tracks when he abandoned composure, when he abandoned strategy, when he abandoned trying to leverage something over Jesus. Jesus, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to be a, I'm going to be a good Christian boy. Like I'm going to be so nice. I'm going to be so that when the time comes and I present my requests to you, as I often do, that then you'll respond in the way that I've predetermined for you to respond. It doesn't work that way. You have to abandon composure, abandon strategy, abandon your willingness to try to leverage and manipulate against the God of the universe. And what you'll find is a life that you could have never won for yourself, but it requires that you abandon all of those things. We cannot come to the cross offering something to God. That's the difference. I'm, gonna, I'm so getting ahead of myself, but that's the difference That's the difference between someone who can truly walk in light of their salvation and and one who struggles constantly because God doesn't answer their prayers in the way that they wanted. It's such a difficult truth. It's such a heavy truth. But if we want God for God's sake, that's what that means. If you want God for the things that he'll give you, then there's going to be a life fraught with problems, a theology that constantly undermines itself. So, Jesus responds to faith-filled abandon. Throw yourself upon his character and watch him do impossible things in and through you. In response, the blind man, Bartimaeus, this is what he does in verse 50. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Can you imagine? You've been blind. You're calling out to the savior of the universe. There's this crowd of people telling you, be quiet, be quiet. He's too important. Stop it. And then he says, 
bring him forward. Bartimaeus throws off his cloak. I love that the Bible actually dedicated like prime real estate to describing this man's reaction because it's so inspiring. He's so enthusiastic about what God is doing in his life. He said he throws off his cloak, he springs up, and he comes to Jesus. There's a abandon, there's excitement, there's confidence, so beautiful. And Jesus asks him the all-important question, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Which is an insane question, right? It's an insane question. Jesus has all the resources in the whole universe. There is no limit to what he can do for you. And so his invitation, his open-ended question is absolutely flabbergasting. And two things, two things. The first one, Jesus loves, I totally made this up, Jesus loves behaps, okay? (laughs) Jesus loves behaps. Big, hairy, audacious prayers. Big, hairy, audacious prayers. Heal my blindness. What? What do you mean heal your blindness? Help you with your taxes? Maybe. Heal you with blindness? Like, what are you talking about? Like, help me to forgive the people that, you know, I'm holding bitterness. Okay, fine, sure. But like, heal me from blindness? Put my family, it's been broken, and I don't know if there's a way back. I don't know if if anyone's pride will subside to enough of a degree that my family will ever find reconciliation again. Big, hairy, audacious, prayers. Um, I, I, I don't know how deeply I should go into this, but um, there's an insane story in my family. And the insane story, I'll briefly go over. If you want to learn more, I'd love to tell you more about it. Um, my father and his parents, if you've heard about this, this cult that came through the San Francisco, the Bay Area um, some years ago, led by a man named Jim Jones. Um, this was a cult that was started by Jim Jones, and he led this entire group, this church that he'd started based on a loose interpretation of the gospel and a large social justice movement. He created a utopia down in South America, and in doing so, invited his church, his congregants, to come and follow. When they did, they found out that things were not as he told them they would be. This wasn't a utopian environment at all. In fact, it was uh, it was life-altering in the worst possible sense. Um, my dad was there. Um, he experienced horrendous, horrific things, absolutely just awful of the worst kind of things. And afterwards, surviving, only just, um, he came back and lived some number of years until he had a few kids. <laughs> Me, my older brother, uh, to be specific, and we got saved, and we started praying for him. And if you can imagine the biggest, hairiest, most audacious prayer, save my dad, baptize him. Who thought? Who thought could have ever happened? He still had the images burned into his memory of the cult that he'd been a part of, where the man stood in the front of the, in the congregation, waving a Bible, talking about Jesus. Every time he stepped foot in the church, he would get goosebumps because he would feel creeped out by everything that was going on there. Who thought he could ever open himself up? Who thought he could ever warm up to the gospel of Jesus Christ again? I'm incredibly overwhelmed, joy-filled to tell you that it didn't even take that long. (laughs) 
<laughs> it took like, you know, we started ministering to him. He's, he was in the church, sitting in the back pew one day, you know, like trying to, you know, he, he married, of course he married a woman that would not let him skip out on church. And so she forced him, sit in the back of the church, good on her, God bless women that force us to go to church. Um, he got saved, God spoke to him. He drew his attention to the cross. He drew his attention to the sacrifice and the mercy of the gospel. He drew him in and he changed him forever. Then he called me, I was down in San Diego, beautiful San Diego, just minding my own business, you know, driving down the freeway. And he called me to say he was getting baptized that weekend and I should come up for it. I will never forget that conversation. I will never forget feeling like there's nothing that God can't do. There's nothing that God can't do. The enemy took God's word, just like he did when he tempted Jesus, and flipped it and twisted it and warped it and made it ugly, made it something that was painful for my father. And despite all of that, we prayed, we prayed some behaps for a while. I think it was seven or eight years, something like that. And then God moved. God in his mercy, God in his grace said, okay, I'm going to call one more son home. Um, and it's the most powerful thing I think that has happened in my life where he overcame uh, decades, decades of nightmares, decades of pain, deep trauma, and healed my father and brought him into his family. Uh, absolutely amazing. Okay, Jesus loves behalves. So pray them, pray them, pray them. Pray for your lost family. Pray for your prodigals. Pray for your schools. Pray for your kids' friends who are terrible influences on them. <laughs> pray for, pray for the, the discord that your, your kids are on, you know, that online communication stuff. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for your, pray for your unbelieving spouse. Pray for your, your in-laws who are awful to hang out with. <laughs> you know, pray, for, pray for big, hairy, audacious prayers. Jesus loves them, loves them. Why? Because they stimulate faith in a way that comfortable prayers can't. They inspire faith in a way that comfortable prayers can't. And they give you pretty cool stories to tell that just comfortable prayers can't. The second thing for verse 51 is, is so interesting. Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? This question would have leapt off the page for readers. It would have leapt out of the conversation for those who had been walking with Jesus up till this point, because the interaction that happened just before this conversation was with James and John, sons of Zebedee. And they came to him with an audacious request. Their request that you, maybe you'll remember from Danny teaching uh, recently was, was a carte blanche request. Jesus, they said to him in uh, verse 35, chapter 10, they went to Jesus and said to him, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wild, audacious. And what is so crazy about that request is that they weren't rebuked for it. What? They weren't rebuked for it. Like Jesus could have responded, you guys are being so naive you're being immature, you're being manipulative. Like, you want me to say yes before you tell me what the request is? Like, there's so many weird things that you guys are doing right now, and he doesn't rebuke them. It's so fascinating to know that they come and say, Jesus, whatever we ask of you, we want you to do it. And he goes, all right, what do you got? How crazy is that? He loves big, audacious, big, hairy, ooh, hairy, audacious prayers. He's like, all right. What do you got? 
And then um, this question, he's like, what do you want me to do for you? Connects the two passages, right? What do you want me to do for you? In fact, it's not the only parallel that exists between the two passages. Um, First one, in both, a request is issued to Jesus. In both, Jesus responds with this pointed question. In both, the requests seem to come from a place of familiarity with Jesus. James and John ask him for a seat next to him in glory. Their request is for glory. And the the blind beggar, Bartimaeus, he comes with his request, seemingly knowing at least enough about Jesus to call him son of David twice and to ask him for healing. So there's some intimacy, there's some familiarity with who Jesus is. He heals and he's the Messiah, or at least he claims to be. And so there's some intimacy of knowledge there. But there's one more parallel um, that I want to draw our attention to. You see, Bartimaeus's blindness is very obvious. It's right on the surface. He's physically blind. And as a result, he knows it. And so when he comes to Jesus, he asks for mercy because he knows he offers nothing else to Jesus. He's poor. He can't see. He's begging. And so he comes to Jesus as such, offering nothing, asking for mercy. The disciples also struggle with a type of blindness. Um, Their blindness, however, though, is unseen. This story isn't simply a story about one blind beggar, but about three blind men, one of which knows his blindness, and the other two, they don't. And because of their uh, assumed ability to see, they grow entitled. They ask Jesus, not for mercy, but instead they ask for glory. Um, and this is, uh, this is the important part to notice because who does Jesus say yes to? He says no to the two who ask for glory. He says no to the two driven by pride. He says no to the two that feel like they have something to offer him and they just feel like Jesus is the way to glory. He's the way to power. He's the way to prestige, to comfort. He's the way to do those things. He's not the destination itself. The other, he doesn't ask for glory. He asks for mercy. And Jesus always grants mercy. Jesus is speedy to grant mercy. And it's just as important to see it in this way because it's just as important to see our need as it is to see Jesus's mercy. If we just see Jesus's mercy and we don't see our need, we'll always treat Jesus like he's the means to an end, like he's the way to get what I want. He might be the only way, (laughs) the only truth, you know, and the only life, like the only way to get what I want, but nevertheless, he's the means to an end. But if we can abandon all of those things and see our need, our deep and ever-present need for a savior, then he will only ever be and always be the destination. We will not need anything else. We won't want anything else because he is the thing. He's the thing that we want. He's the person that we've always needed. He's the ever-present companion. He's a source of peace and joy. He's the ever, uh, effervescent spring of mercy. And so it's just as important to see our need as it is to see Jesus's mercy. Truly following Christ requires both. It requires both. 
And here's where we'll end, in verse 52. The blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Here's three take-homes. They're not on slides, um, but I just want to say them to you now. Um, may your prayer tonight be. And as, we, uh, as the worship team comes back out and we sing a couple songs, maybe you would talk to him. Talk to, talk to God yourself and do it out loud. Do it in the quiet of your own heart. Write down a prayer, whatever it is you know, that you feel like is the easiest way for you to get into a good space where you can interact with the God of the universe. And it might be one, two, or all three of these prayers. The prayers are this. Um, Merciful Jesus, help me to see. We need to see both the God of glory, what's available to us because of Jesus, what's available to us in Jesus. And also, certainly, we need to see our own need. The psalmist says, search me and find me. We need to be seen as he sees us, bearing the image of God and bearing the vacancy, bearing the need for God as well. Because then we'll find a God who is sufficient. We'll find a mercy who's sufficient. And we'll find a willing vessel for which his mercy to dwell. Secondly, your prayer tonight might be audacious and seemingly impossible. It might be one of those prodigal prayers. It might be one of those prayers that you know your friend has battled for a long time. You know your friend has to overcome, or maybe I'll say it this way, you know in your friend something difficult has to be overcome. There needs to be healing. There needs to be uh, a, a wholeness restored to your friend. And maybe you want to stand in proxy for them. Um, maybe you want to come to the front after service and be prayed over in proxy and, and because this is an impossible prayer. It cannot be done without God's direct involvement. And I, I just feel like in those moments, God kind of cracks his knuckles. He's like, all right, this is what I've been waiting for. A seemingly impossible, audacious prayer. Maybe that's your second one. Thirdly, maybe tonight you would leap into the loving arms of Jesus with reckless abandon. See, there's, there's often, maybe always, going to be people that are taken aback uh, by our abandon, by our willingness to call out to Jesus despite our circumstances or maybe even because of our circumstances, that it won't make sense. There's so many times in scripture where God asked his people to do things and it just didn't make sense and people stood in resistance to it. Think of the ark. <laughs> Who's going to build a boat on dry ground and then sail it out of there? <laughs> sail it out of the cul-de-sac. You know, that's insane. It's impossible. It can't be done. And that's exactly what God does. He does the miraculous. He does those things which can't be done. But here's the difference. And I love when Ray said this uh, some years ago, it hit me and never slid off. God will do for you that which you cannot do for yourself. He will accomplish the impossible. He will save you. You cannot. He will do what you cannot do for yourself, but he will not do that which you can do for yourself. He will not force you to be open to his spirit. He will not force you to pray 
prayers that are big and audacious. He will not, he will not, he will not make you believe. He won't make you take risks. He'll be as gentle and patient as he's always been. He'll stand at the door and knock. And whoever would open the door unto him, he will receive the gift of eternal life. He will receive an opportunity and a relationship that is impossible, that is huge, that's transcendent, and it's everything you've ever needed. Let me pray for you. Jesus, you're amazing. This is what you do. You are the God of the impossible. You're the God who loves audacious prayers. You're the God who says, bring it all. Bring the uncomposed. Bring the messy. Bring the, I haven't quite figured it out yet. Bring the frustration. Bring the, I've still got some hangups. Bring the, I'm still on the fence. Bring the, I don't know if you can quite do that, but I'm gonna give you the chance. Bring the, okay, God, the ball's in your court now. Bring the, I, I have unbelief, but Father, I believe. I've got my doubts, but Jesus, I'm willing to try. Bring the, I've been praying this for a while, but I know you're good, and I know you come through. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.